Greetings on this Sunday morning, and I know in uh, all times, really, there are so many competing voices, so many responsibilities during the week, and what a chance is ours to spend this time on the Sabbath to recalibrate, uh, to think about that true north, what is really the most important thing, and that is what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was just thinking this week on a verse that I think captures what we try to do as a church, right, with all the, the questions that we have on how to assemble again and with multiple services now, we must come back to the foundational truths of what it is we're doing. And I think Colossians 1.28 captures it well. Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And I love that. It's so unusual. We proclaim him. Many have proclaimed philosophies. They've proclaimed themselves. Uh, but here Paul's clear. We proclaim the Lord Jesus. And the goal for the short time that we have to be this covenant community, these called out ones that we've been brought here by the Spirit of God to this church in Avon to be the family of God, this local church family for a short time. What are we doing? We're building each other up into full maturity in Jesus. And this time in the culture presents, while a difficult time, presents us with an opportunity to do that. May we stay on mission and may we stay focused. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, and just because we saw a, a significant bump, I'll mention it again, we want to remind everyone that we have a partnership with Fieldstone Counseling. They're a wonderful count, Christian counseling agency uh, with a lot of skilled counselors, and we have a lot of questions now. There's a lot of stress, and people have lost jobs, and all a host of issues, and we are just delighted to be partnering with Fieldstone, and so if you're someone who's saying, you know, I'd really like to talk out what's going on in my life and, and you'd like a Christian counselor, Fieldstone Counseling, we, we highly recommend them. And Pastor Ian, who leads our worship, of course, is our, our liaison. So if you want to shoot him an email or any of us on staff, uh, we'll point you in the right direction. That's Fieldstone Counseling. Uh, I want you all to know that we are mindful of this fall and we realize we you know, aren't going to be able to uh, have the format that we do forever and that we're looking at the creative use of space, uh, spreading people out and, and do, again obeying uh, our consciences and uh, navigating this together, but hopefully we'll have um, a wide selection of um, workshops and Bible classes and opportunities for people to meet in smaller groups. And of course, small groups are always a wonderful way to do that. So we are looking forward to the fall and what's ahead and what God would have for our church family. So those things being said, we now turn our attention to the Lord and again, allowing him to uh, help our minds to focus on what really matters. So Pastor Ian, if you would call us to worship now. Well, church, good morning. Thankful that we can be together, present our offerings of worship before the Lord, and remember his goodness, his mercy, his justice we find in Christ. And let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have sent your son, your only begotten, your beloved son, with whom you are well pleased. And we thank you, Lord, that by his death and by his resurrection and his ascension to be with you, you now are well pleased with myriads of sons and daughters those who profess Christ, those who've been saved by his grace through the work that he has accomplished for them on the cross are now your children. And Lord, we thank you that we can present our offerings of worship to you as, as adopted sons and daughters, those whom you beloved and showed your mercy and kindness through the Lord Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Everlasting King, accept the tribute which we bring, accept the well-deserved renown, wear our praises as your crown. Oh, send your spirit to empire, rest and repentance to our hearts, like the deer our wind from above. We first receive your pledge of love. Jesus, everlasting King, accept the tribute which we bring. Accept the well-deserved renown. Wear our praises as your crown. The gladness of redemption's day, our hearts would wish it long to stay. Nor let our faith forsake its hold, nor comfort sink, nor love grow cold. Jesus, everlasting King, accept the tribute which we bring, accept the well-deserved renown, wear our praises as your crown. May every time of worship sing, your grace revealed more rich and free till we are raised to sing your name at the great supper of the Lamb. Oh, Jesus, everlasting King, accept the tribute which we bring, accept the roll away and bring the coronation day the king of grace shall fill his throne with all his father's glory except the tribute which we bring except the as we do let's look to scripture to encourage us to remind us the goodness of the lord and his character we'll look this morning at uh, psalm 1 together and let's recite it together the psalmist writes blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And with that, we think of one who is righteous and yet became as one numbered with the wicked. He became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Blessed are we who call upon his name and look to him for refuge, for solace, for peace. And so this song is it's a hymn, it's a new hymn, but it reminds us of the cross by which we now bear as his children and all the blessings that that provides us in this life.
God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim day. Home shall change to glad fruition. Fate to sight. Pastor Ian and instrumentalists, if you would now, it is our privilege to pray uh, to the creator of all, and thanks to Jesus, our mediator, we can go with full confidence before the, the Father of all. So will you bow with me? Loving Father, we come before you now, acknowledging your greatness and your kindness to us, your creatures. We thank you for sustaining us and providing for our needs. We confess that we have too often been focused on our own circumstances and have failed to trust your sovereign care. Lord, for the times in recent days when we have complained about our situation or have been caught up in a selfish worry, please forgive us and help us to think more about you when we feel anxious and angry. May we be those who place our confidence in you and those who are quick to serve others. Lord, as we think of this past week, we confess that we did things we ought not to have done, and we failed to do things that we should have done. We are sorry that we have been poor ambassadors for you, the true God, and we humbly ask that you mold us more into the likeness of Jesus and give us the strength to represent you throughout the week. We thank you for the blood of Jesus, which avails for sinners, and the assurance of forgiveness for all those who trust Jesus as the only Savior. Father, we pray today for local schools, really the schooling situation in general. Firstly, we pray for the administrators that you would grant them wisdom to implement just the right plans. Give them the grace that they need to respond to questions and opinions. Lord, we also pray for teachers who are working hard to adapt to the new measures. We thank you for the hard work of so many in our church family who serve as teachers and serving those young students, building into those minds. We pray that you would protect them, that you would renew their strength at the start of this school year, being as odd as it is. And Lord, we pray for the students of all ages. We pray for them as they've not been physically in school since early March and those who need to make an adjustment back to that and others who will be on the screen. We just pray, Lord, that you, they would be able to delight in learning. May they recognize that an intellectual curiosity is a good gift from you. And may this time not be wasted for the young people in our church, but rather one where you really grow them, where they think and they learn. So again, Father, we commit this academic year to you and all those involved. And Lord, as I mentioned in this week's email, we pray for those who've recently lost a parent. We pray for the Molina family and the passing of Dan's, Dan's father, Blasino. We pray for Dan and Melinda and the girls in this difficult time and just pray you'd be with Dan's mom and comfort them and be the strength that they need. We thank you for his life and the legacy that he left. 
We also continue to pray for Clarence and Laura Watkins in the home going of Clarence's mom. And we thank you for Clarence's example of caring for his mother in those last weeks. I pray for Jan and Gary Slazuski in the loss of Jan's father, George. And Lord, for others in that situation, just may we not deny the grief, but rather to say we grieve as those with hope. And Lord, we also pray for those who have aging parents. We pray this morning especially for Betty Gray, Dean's mother, who has had a recent fall. I pray that you would encourage her and that you would strengthen her inwardly and physically. And as she not so long ago lost her husband, Lord, I pray that you would be her refuge and her strength. We pray that you would be with Jessica and Dean as they care for her. Finally, Lord, we pray for our church family, that you would help us reflect your idea of a covenant community, that we would love one another well. Help us to serve selflessly and to be gracious to one another, especially in these times. We pray that we would be unified even in a time when it's wise for us to have physical distance and when we have multiple services. May we be united in our mission to follow Christ together. Above all else, Lord, help us to take seriously the call to be real disciples, not phony disciples, but real disciples, and use us, Father, that we may be light to those who do not know you, their maker. Now, as we turn to your word, pray that you would instruct our hearts, that we would be able to... Um, focus on what you want to tell us and that you would mold us and give us the eyes to see a deeper truth and that we would be changed by your eternal word. So now may that word be our guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and Jesus' glory be our supreme aim. Amen. And if you're able, we'd love for you, even at home, as you watch this, to stand where you're at in honor of God's word. We're in one of the biographies of Jesus that's been preserved for us, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 6. And I'll read from verse 12 through verse 26. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when he came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. 
But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thank you for honoring God's word. You may be seated. Well, today we begin with the question of whether the Christian life really is different. I mean, I think with the busyness of things and the kind of cultural hangover of a greater Christian influence that this distinction between being a Christian or not is often blunted. And you think, well, Christians, you know, we have similar jobs to non-Christians. We work along non-Christians. We do the same kind of shopping as non-Christians. We tend to educate our kids in a similar way as non-Christians. That you can go down the line and say, really, what, what is the difference in the Christian life? And it would seem at every point that we're kind of sucked back into thinking uh, worldly views, that that's the default position to not think about being a Christian, but rather to just kind of blend in and not giving it much, much attention. But we must see today that Jesus, in the start of this very famous sermon, makes it clear that the Christian life is very different. And I say in the notes as you're following lines, say in some ways that this is surprising, right, that Jesus would call his followers to such a countercultural way of living. But actually what we've learned up to this point in Luke's gospel is it's not that surprising, right? Everything Jesus has done has challenged the status quo. He's pushed back on the so-called religious experts last week that he's really coming to say, look at what God has done and is doing in his life. And that still is true today. That what God has done in Jesus is really what reality is. And everything ought to revolve around that. And that Jesus does some things in our passage today that this is how he's going to change the world. That the first thing, after a night of prayer, notice in verse 12, right? He spends the night in prayer and he comes down with absolute clarity about God's will. And he calls 12 men to himself, those who would be apostles. He calls these 12 men. And then he starts in on a famous discourse. And we'll kind of take these matters in turn. But firstly, let's focus on verses 12 to 16 on the calling of these 12 men to accomplish Jesus' mission while on earth. And, and we have to notice, right, that actually verses 12 to 16 contain a miracle. You say, wait a second here, I've been reading Luke's gospel and there have been miracles. I mean, last week we read about the man with the withered hand and a few weeks ago the healing of the leper. Those are miracles. There's no miracle in 6.12 to 16. And I would say there is a miracle. There's a miracle in the sense that these 12 men with their backgrounds could spend any amount of time together at all. Take, for example, the verse where, verse 15, where Simon is mentioned in the same verse as Matthew. You say, Matthew, we know, was a tax collector. See, Matthew was the guy who was somewhat in between the Jews who were a, a colonized power, right? That he was te te collecting taxes uh, for the Romans. That he would have been one viewed by any pious Jew as a kind of sellout. Hey, look at that guy. He's got a lofty job for the Romans, and he's going around, you know, plundering us Jewish people to, to go pay the pagan world, you know, maybe taking a bit for himself or giving a bit to Herod. That was who Matthew was, a tax collector, a, a one who sold out the Jews. But then we get this second Simon. You notice whom he was called. 
Simon the Zealot. Now we know that being a zealot in the first century, we have a lot of extra biblical evidence that tells us a bit more about this from Josephus. See, the zealots were a class of Jews that were the extreme nationalists. Josephus would blame the rebellion, uh, the Roman rebellion, the one that destroyed the temple in 70. He really blames this class of people called the zealots, the one that this Simon was a part of. You see, Simon was a supreme nationalist. Anybody who wasn't fool on board for, for Jewish identity, for what we now call Zionism, like he was, he was gung-ho in that. Say, Simon and Matthew, in, world, in a worldly sense, could not have gotten on. They would have been arch enemies. And yet, there's a miracle here that the two of them forget those paths and they follow Jesus. That these 12, as we know from other places, they come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We've already know that a few of them are fishermen. You know, others, you know, being a tax collector, you probably had to have a different kind of an education. Every indication is that these 12, they weren't particularly, um, they weren't particularly lofty individuals, a very normal people but had diverse backgrounds. And this, my friends, is a miracle of the church that I hope you remember back when we were able to meet or maybe in a church that you had been in, uh, you know, in a previous point in your life that you'd be able to look around and say, wow, I never thought I'd be sitting here on a Sunday morning with that person. But Christ has called us together. I remember in one of my previous churches that I would sit in a particular place at a particular service and there was a young boy, maybe about 12, who had Down syndrome. And he could be quite disruptive during the service. Uh, he was there with his mother and he would just uh, be a distraction getting up during the service and making noise and so forth. And uh, it was, uh, this would happen with some regularity. And then something changed one week is that I noticed uh, a man who sat uh, previously, maybe a row or two behind him, who's a middle aged now, but whom I know is a great athlete uh, back in the day, still to this day holds uh, many of the records at the high school. If ever there was, uh, you know, a cool kid in school, it would have been this guy. And what I noticed is that this middle aged man, the great athlete, built a friendship with this boy with Down syndrome. And every service after that, I noticed that the boy would be very close to this man, and the man would rest his hand on the boy's shoulder. And the boy would be perfect during service. He'd sing the hymns. He'd sit diligently. And I always marvel at that. I say, Lord, look at what you've done. You've taken these two that the world would normally not put together, and you've done a beautiful thing there. See, I know another gentleman in a predominantly Anglo church, and why I bring him up is because he was a former high up in the Black Panthers. Say, now he worships in a predominantly white church. So the stories like that, you say, we take it for granted. You know, you've all been in board meetings as I have. You say anybody getting along is, is something, but how about being a part of the same church family? Right from the very start, we get a clear indication of what Christ calls us to. Whatever our background, our tendencies, our proclivities, our politics, that all that's on the periphery when it comes to what? To following Jesus. Friends, if Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot could advance a mission together. The two people in Providence Church that are on the opposite side of the poles could advance the mission together. That Jesus calls people from diverse backgrounds. Now these 12 have a particular role, don't they? Notice verse 13, that they're apostles. Apostles. Why do I bring this up? Some churches, I think, 
um, aren't really clear on the, the fact that the apostle was a, a very distinct set of, of people. In other words, you'll take the language there, right? Jesus calls a larger amount of disciples, who knows, maybe a couple hundred or something like that. Disciples just means learners, those who are following Jesus and, and learning more, that this is a bigger group. And from that, you see, from the disciples, Jesus chose 12 of them from the disciples to be named apostles. That the word apostle, yes, can be used in a general sense. It just means sent ones. So, you know, in some ways, all of us can be sent by Jesus to do things. But here we have apostle as a technical term. That the apostles here are the 12 called by Jesus. They knew him in person and given a special task and a special uh, realm of responsibility. So now, you know, some will say, I think some denominations get a bit off when they make so-and-so an apostle as if he speaks with the same authority as the Bible or something. Say, not at all. When the Bible speaks of the apostles as a technical term, it's talking about these 12 individuals plus a few others, say Paul and Barnabas, who were called specifically by Christ for that task. Those are the apostles, and these 12 are going to take the mission forward, that they're going to bear the message of Jesus and do it and get the church off and running in these early decades. Now, these followers, these followers are to have a deliberate orientation. That's where our passage takes us next, that many are coming to Jesus, right, from 17 and forward. Say there's a large crowd, and notice that Jesus focuses in, right? He, he kind of pulls his disciples up, and in verse 20, his eyes lift, and they lock on his disciples. So there's really almost three different um, groups, if you will, uh, as he speaks here. He goes up to a place and he looks out and says there's a massive crowd some who don't even know that much about Jesus or know that he's a miracle worker they come to see him and then there's a crowd of his uh, disciples those who are the learners and the followers and now there are these 12 the first time that we get these designated apostles together what would Jesus say and he goes up and he stands on a level place in verse 17 now some who know the Bible very well uh, you've got a question, and it's a good question. You say, wait a second here. There's very similar sayings to the ones that I read in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, Jesus starts a sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, in a very similar way. How is it that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is on a mountain, but in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on a level place? Does this show some kind of tampering with, with the Bible? Does this show that it's all a fraud? And I would respond this way. Say, when uh, any preacher that you listen to has... Um, things to say from God, we don't expect those things to be uttered only once. Say, so that would be crazy. I think I've only been the pastor here 11 months, and if you went back and listened to the sermons, you said, yeah, there are tropes, there are things worth repeating, we study God's word, and it all connects together. Say, so when a pastor uh, has a, a slogan that captures well what God wants to say, that it's often repeated. And so what I'm saying here is the fact that Jesus is on a mountain in Matthew's gospel and on a level place doesn't mean that the Bible's been tampered with or it's been manipulated, but rather Jesus would say similar things that he would go around Galilee preaching. Moreover, I think we'll see, well, there are some similarities between Luke chapter 6 and Matthew 5 to 7, that they are, there are differences, some of which we'll see today. So Jesus now, gathering this bunch, looks down at his disciples, locks eyes, no doubt with the 12, locks eyes with some of his followers, those committed followers, 
and he says what would really shock them, that he tells them that there's to be a kind of counter-reality. They say, yeah, the, the world's going on, but my disciples live this way. And how shocking is that? What he's calling his disciples to, what we read today, is real commitment, a distinct way of living, something altogether different than what the way they would have been living or what the, the kind of cultural, the cultural wave is going, but he calls them to a distinct lifestyle, a way that they're to represent him. And this is unpacked then in verses 20 through 26. And I want to point out the symmetry of what Jesus says. You noticed how the blessings in 20 to 20, really 20 to 22, mirror or are mirrored by verses 24 to 26. So take, for example, verse 20 talks about the poor, 24, the rich. Verse 21, the hungry. Verse 25, the fool. And uh, the next one there, that those, the blessed are those who weep, and then those who are laughing. Then those who are reviled, that is those who are spoken poorly of, and then those who are spoken well of. So there's a perfect symmetry in verses 20 to 26. And Jesus does this, I think, it's a complete reversal of what we would expect him to say, that we are to live a distinct lifestyle. There's a counter-reality for the real followers of Jesus. Now, before I get into that, there's something that we need to pause to do first, and that is to define some difficult words here. This word blessed is so, I think, uh, misconstrued that we talk a lot about blessing or being blessed, that we'll say somebody's a blessing, but here we really need to say it's, it's quite a tough word to define, isn't it? That the word blessed, as used by Jesus here, uh, some have translated it happy. And happiness is a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. And, and I, I think it's it, some, I, think, I guess everyone would say that's a perfectly legitimate translation that uh, Jesus is calling us to, to real happiness in him. But the reason why I think that word is short, at least as it falls on English-speaking ears, is because it lacks the theological dimension. In other words, we think about happiness, we kind of think about how everything's going our way. Uh, circumstances have aligned that I'm emotionally on, on a high, that things are great. That's when we use the word happy. But I think there's something deeper here. That when Jesus says, blessed are these, he's saying something like there's a deep joy for these kinds of, of folks because they've got their priorities straight and they're resting in God. In other words, there's a theological dimension to blessing, and I think that's what we mean, right? If we say somebody is a blessing to us, what we're saying is that they've helped me apprehend, they've helped me see a bit of God, they've helped me behave in a Christ-like way. It's not just, oh, this person has made me happy today, but rather that they've given me something a bit deeper, something a bit firmer. So Jesus, when he, in this case four times, says blessed, He's saying something like, these folks are flourishing because they're right with God. They, 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 have been, they have pleased God and they feel his favor and there's something, there's a deep joy. Yes, they're happy, but more so they're flourishing that they're right with God. Alternatively then, what about the word woe? Now, this is not one we use. We do use blessing. We can overuse blessing, but we certainly don't use woe. Woe to you. What is Jesus saying with the woes, the four woes in 24 to 26? That woe also carries a theological message. That woe here carries a connotation of God's judgment, doesn't it? 
You can think back to the Old Testament prophets, right? When Jeremiah and others are speaking to the people, they're speaking a message of woe. What they're saying is, hey, turn back, repent, be very careful. You're on the wrong path and God's justice is coming. That's the message of woe. And also that judgment accompanied with sorrow. Something like, how sad. How misguided are those who blank? So I think that that's an important, as we look at the symmetry, the kind of counter-reality that Jesus is calling us towards, we need to understand what is blessing. Blessing is flourishing and delighting in God, recognizing what it is to be right with him. What is woe? That we're on the path to his judgment, and it's a sad way to win, and it's not going to win the day. So to be blessed is to be right with God, and to be under woe is to be uh, expecting God's fearful judgment and to behaving in a way that, that uh, does not please him. So now moving to the what we can call kingdom values. In order to couch this, I want to draw on a few uh, Christian sociologists. And the first is that of Peter Berger. That Berger would help us think about this famous Christian, Christian sociologist. He coined a little term that he called a plausibility structure. That a plausibility structure was really just a viable way of seeing one's life. And so Berger would say something like this. He'd say, you know, back in Puritan times, you say the question of God was taken for granted. That if you were to go to a Puritan and suggest the idea that, you know, somehow there might not be a God or that you could do life without God or that you could do a day without thinking about God, he would say that is, that is an implausible way of looking at reality. Of course there's a God. My whole life is governed by God and the Bible. And what Berger says is that what modernity has ushered in and post-modernity where we find ourselves is that there's not really a plausibility structure that includes God. That it would seem that the plausibility structure for most people is a, a naturalistic position, right? That the best way to view reality is without God in it. And so we have to ask now, say, when Jesus calls us to this, how very countercultural now is, uh, is it to live for him? That there's a plausibility structure issue in America that we face. Along similar lines, I think we could look at Charles Taylor's, uh, those uh, who know Charles Taylor wrote a very famous book called The Secular Age, uh, one of the key sociological books of our time. And Taylor talks about the social imaginary. What Taylor means by that is just as you go through life, are there, these are the ways that people imagine their social existence. So you have a, you know, a person here who's walking on the street and they're saying, what kind of messages are they taking in? What's the best life to live, right? You say, well, I guess I'm supposed to do that. I guess I'm supposed to buy that. I'm supposed to make a name for myself. I guess I'm supposed to uh, get a good education and so forth. That's what Taylor means. What kind of categories do we process our lives in? How do we frame our lives? And is God a part of that? Now here comes Jesus going to be absolutely clear on these things. What's the structure for our existence? What's the social imaginary? What kind of categories should the Christian use to frame our lives? And he does so in a provocative way with these oxymorons. You know what an oxymoron is, right? An oxymoron is uh, two words that are contradictory or seemingly contradictory. And we have that over and over again four times, right? Verses, we're now in verses 20 to 22, that Jesus values a kingdom mindset 
and unpacks this with these oxymorons. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the mourning, that is the weeping, and those who are reviled. Say, it seems that Jesus is contradicting. You say, wait a second, how can a person be flourishing, or in that looser translation, happy before God, when they're poor and hungry and weeping? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? And again, notice how he's unpacking a counter-reality. And you notice he's speaking to his disciples. Now think about these disciples for a moment, that they're Jewish. That means they're an occupied people, that the Romans are over them, that they have very little voice. From what we can tell, many of them were not particularly well off, that they didn't have financial security. What little they had, they've now left to follow Jesus. That his disciples, I think in every sense of the word then, would have been poor and on the outside, now going to become itinerant preachers, if you will. They're going to be hungry. They've left their life behind. And why are they weeping? You say, well, when you come to follow Jesus, I think naturally you weep to say there are so many who are lost in our culture, so much sin in the world, both in ourselves and elsewhere, and say that's the disposition of those who are mourning and those who are weeping that these disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. They're poor, they're hungry, they're on the outside, that they're materially impoverished, and that they're desperate. They're desperate in their condition. That the only thing that they have, notice, is to call on the Son of Man. That's where their refuge is in verse 22. See, all these things, the poor, the poorness, the being hungry and weeping for the sin of the world, and being made fun of and mocked, why is it? It's on account of the Son of Man that these are the lot. Blessed are the lot who have nothing in the world except the Lord Jesus. Now, what does he mean then, backing up to verse 20? The kingdom of God. You know, Jesus, the most popular thing, the most common thing that he preaches is the kingdom of God. They're more even than what that word the gospel that jesus preaches the kingdom what's the kingdom we can translate the kingdom as just god's rule that where the kingdom is so that shows us who's the king the king is jesus and where the king is there's the kingdom that all those who follow jesus are in the kingdom of god now and we await the final consummation of that kingdom when jesus returns that's the kingdom of god where christ is ruling so what jesus is saying in verses 20 to 22 is something like this that blessed and flourishing are those who don't put their hope in earthly things but realize their only hope is in the Lord Jesus and in representing him in his kingdom. That's what Jesus favors. That's the life that he calls us towards. Now some saying here, I think that this is a real challenge for a congregation like ours because you say, wait a second here, the poor, yeah, there's a spiritual dimension to these categories, right? We know in Matthew's gospel that Jesus does preach this way, the poor in spirit and those who hunger for righteousness. In other words, they seem more spiritual in Matthew's gospel, but what about here? How does a congregation like ours, a rich congregation, how are we supposed to be real disciples? And all of us feel a different level of conviction I think by design right that many of us our consciences are pricked when we are reckless in these areas 
and say it's a difficult thing for us to translate these kind of truths. But what I will say is that everyone uh, who I know who's a true follower of Jesus and many in our church, I think we would say, you know what, we, we are a little bit poorer for following Jesus. That we contribute to causes um, that we wouldn't if we weren't Christians, that we've given to things that we wouldn't if we weren't Christians, we've sacrificed uh, on account of being Christians. And I think every true Christian would say, well, I, you know, poor like anything is relative, but all of us have sacrificed on account of Jesus, at least I hope we have. And I'm sure a lot of us, we have said no to things that uh, might be uh, deemed extravagant on account of our, even though we could afford it, we might say, you know, I'm not going to do that because I'm a Christian and there's a better choice to be made here. You know, I stand before you today, I'll be through a screen, and I, I tell this um, just with so much gratitude that I would not be in the ministry if it wasn't for several very wealthy businessmen who I would say in their disposition were poor. That yes, they were worth a lot of finances, but in their disposition they wasn't they weren't haughty. They didn't say, Look at what we've done for ourselves. They weren't misers, but rather they said, God's given us this ability and we're gonna we're gonna push the kingdom of God forward because Jesus is the most important thing. Not our well being, but Jesus. And I hope all of us are called to greater, we see, when we're impoverished by worldly standards, when our hope is not there, but our hope is in the Son of Man. That's the goal. And when we do that, yeah, of course there's going to be mockery. I always love the stories when you have someone who's raised in a non-Christian home. And I was just with a member of our church on, uh, on um, Thursday, I think it was. And he told me, you know, his parent, you know, he, he became a Christian in college and went to serve a, a ministry. And his parents said, wait a second, we just paid for this fancy education and you're going to do what? He said, that's what Jesus is driving at here. To say, you know, those who do not put their hope in earthly things, but put their hope in the kingdom of God where Christ rules, their hope is in the Son of Man, they're not being afraid, afraid of being made fun of or reviled to say, yep, my hope is in Jesus. Those are the ones who are blessed. Those are the ones who flourish. Those are the ones who are right before God. You say, now how different, returning to Berger and returning to Taylor, the sociologist, you see how different that plausibility structure is? Let's take a look at the woes now. So Jesus values a kingdom mindset Therefore, what are the woes? Jesus cautions against a worldly mindset. Notice the worldly mindset. Those who are rich, those who are full, that is replete, they have all the fine foods, all the fine wines. They're living it up now, and they strive. They strive to have other people please them. Say, friends, I don't know about you, but this is the default setting. This is the default plausibility structure that I come into the world, right? The, the things that are communicated to me subliminally, the social imaginary, if you will, is telling me, Austin, you do it yourself. Make as much money as you can. Indulge in ways that make you feel good. Laugh it up. Have a jolly good time. And that's really all there is. And try to get as many people to recognize you as possible. You say, instead of being harsh on those who live that way, I think we should just be honest that that's our natural default setting, to live for self. And Jesus tells us clearly, doesn't he? He says, be very careful. Be very careful if that's what you live for. And I think it's not just the God's judgment side, the woe, but he's saying, how sad. How sad if we strive to 
live that way to find all of our meaning in earthly things and being full and being rich and accumulating more say how very sad because you know what that satisfies no one say if ever there were illustrations of this we only need look at our world you say look at all the wealthy people and say they are not really happier than those who are not well off say if ever there's a sermon it's for something like this that those who are rich and well fed and try to live for the world are not happy and it doesn't end well Jesus says, there's no mention, notice in verses 24 to 26, there's no six, there's no mention of the Son of God, no mention of the kingdom of God. That these are those who say, you know that, Jesus, no thanks. Kingdom of God, no thanks. I'm going to build my own little kingdom. And I recall the words of G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic thinker. You know, Chesterton said, you know, real sorrow doesn't come from having little. But Chesterton said, real sorrow comes when you have everything and you realize you're still empty. See, that's a terrifying moment. You think about how many around us, where we have the privilege of living, say they have a lot of nice things. They have a lot of nice things, and in fact, their jobs are maybe even going well. They're climbing, 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 and you say it's a very lonely place. You can picture an A-frame ladder, right? I think that that image of climbing the social and corporate ladder is a good one but notice what happens on an a-frame ladder when you get higher and higher say you get more wobbly don't you until you get that second to last step and it says caution don't go any higher because you're really wobbly you're going to fall and it's very lonely up there and then you realize you run out of steps and you say here i am i'm wobbly i've sacrificed a lot to get here i'm lonely and i'm in danger And I think that's the testimony of many people. You see, friends, Jesus cautions against this worldly mindset. Say, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, from the testimony elsewhere in Scripture and the testimony of church history. Say, the problem, you see, isn't isn't being having a nice meal and the problem isn't having nice things the problem is when we we do that without any any thought at all about God's kingdom or the son of man that's who Jesus is saying woe to you know I want to drive this home with an illustration and that is comes from a wonderful correspondence between a man named Helmut von Moltke and his wife Freya some know this is 1939 to 1945 that Helmut von Moltke was a part of the resistance against the Nazis, had a whole circle around him, uh, one of the most prominent uh, figures to stand up uh, to Hitler, and he's rounded up uh, for being in the resistance, and he is able to sneak out some letters, as I recall, from a courageous chaplain or someone uh, back to his wife, and they've survived, and this is well worth reading, called Letters to Freya. Uh, These are the notes from Helpman von Moltke to his wife back and forth. Love letters, yes, but really about a fine Christian gentleman standing up to Hitler. And he recalls the story. He says he was going uh, daily against the great Nazi interrogator, Roland Freisler. And uh, Freisler had a reputation of uh, he was the henchman. He'd go around all of Hitler's uh, political foes would be rounded up and hanged and had this reputation of being a very nasty interrogator. And one day, Freisler's interviewing von Moltke, and he says, you know, there's one thing you Christians and we Nazis have in common. And he says, we both demand the whole person. And Moltke wrote his wife, and he said, Freisler gave me a great gift that day. He says, that's absolutely correct that Jesus demands the whole person and other worldviews demand the whole person. Say Jesus calls us to be holy for him. 
say, I'm not going to have a foot in the world and a foot elsewhere, an eye out for myself. Yeah, I'm going to try to get rich and be well-fed and laugh it up and have everybody speak well of me and work in Jesus when it's convenient. Or do I say, Lord, I don't need any of that stuff, that I'd rather be in the lot of the poor and the hungry and the weeping and those who are made fun of for following the Son of Man. Now, what's the role of the church? Friends, the plausibility structure outside the church is gone. That is what I say, a godly plausibility structure. That the cultural wave of secularity is strong. In other words, most people walking on the street, you say they're not thinking about God and the characteristics that mark the people of woe. Say that's the default position. It's a lonely position. How important is the church to recalibrate, right, to live where the blessings are? Say we have to create this counter-reality that Jesus calls for, right? That part of the reason we assemble, right, that we interact with our brothers and sisters is to recapture what it really means to be a true disciple, to say not have our eyes on the world, on riches and, and on ourselves, but rather to have our eyes on Jesus and his kingdom, that we're a counterculture, and that's going to be attractive to folks. I really believe it. Say if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, you have non-Christian friend and you send it to him you say you know chasing after the world is is not all that fulfilling and you'll learn it sooner if not later or later if not sooner that chasing after material things leaves us all feeling empty and I hope when you read this you say my goodness look at what Jesus far from being dull and boring you say the bible is that old book and who knows about jesus that weird guy. say what a what a revolution you see what jesus is saying here blessed are those who follow me and think of the kingdom and woe to those who live for the world and i hope that this to you again if you're not a christian is very refreshing you say wait a second i don't have to climb that ladder that corporate ladder i don't have to be you know kind of always trying to win people's approval how freeing how freeing to follow jesus to feel God's pleasure, to be right with him. Then others of us, and we've been Christians a long time, but the pull of the world is so strong. Say, yeah, I affirm the gospel. Remember last year we talked about being a gospel-affirming church. You say, of course we are. But are we a gospel-centered people? Are we those who said, you know, my life, I, I have died to Christ. I, I want to die with him and I want to be raised and live for him that I'm called the whole person my whole person is called to, to him to be sold out for Jesus that we view the world friends we brothers and sisters may we be those who view the world differently as Christ followers who have a different plausibility structure who have a different social imaginary and as we live that out we focus on true discipleship that others will be very attracted to it and to say we have Jesus you know, we church historians don't do much math, but this blessings and woes, as Jesus would call his disciples, I think breaks down nicely into a simple math equation. Jesus plus nothing is far greater than everything minus Jesus. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Say, blessed are those who have nothing, but their only hope is in Jesus. May that be us. And woe to those who've live for earthly things because that's all they're going to get and if they don't come to god through jesus it won't end well friends may we be true disciples jesus values a kingdom mindset may we set that culture as a church amen i'll pray father thank you for preserving your word and this famous sermon 
and these oxymorons about blessed be the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the mocked. And before we dismiss them as being incoherent, may we see the great wisdom in that. Say those are in those categories because they prioritized Jesus and we prioritized your kingdom, your rule. And Lord, all of us are attracted to those positions that are under caution, under, under the side of the woe, right? To make a name for ourselves, to do a bit better, to live for the now. So that temptation is very real. Help us to see that it's bankrupt and that it's lonely. Lord, help us to see the world differently. Help us to be these true disciples, to have a different set of values, a different plausibility structure. Give us the strength, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
because our Savior is alive. We need him. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day 
and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. So may we be those as we need Jesus. May we represent him well, represent the kingdom well, and have that kingdom mindset. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.